0: Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as usual with my co host, Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. We're standing today to we record. Are, I'm indeed. feeling open and energized. How are you? Jazzed. Yeah, totally jazzed. Ta- I'm, ta- I'm already tired, actually. You have a look of irony on your face. <laughs> <laughs> I feel as though you're mocking me. Not at all. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm very excited. <laughs> today, we are teaming up with the Welcome Prize to bring you a special show about medicine and literature.
1: We are indeed. And we've got two very special guests this month, both shortlisted for the 2017 prize this year. First, we're gonna interview David France, whose non-fiction book, How to Survive a Plague, is a riveting and devastating first-hand account of the fight against AIDS in the 1980s in New York. And then we're talking to Sarah Moss, whose fifth novel, The Tidal Zone, is a complex and beautiful story about family life in the wake of a serious medical emergency.
0: Two very different
1: but beautiful books, I think. Yeah, I agree, They're, they're fabulous.
0: So, and then finally, we will be talking about medicine more generally in literature, from the work of Thomas Mann, who wrote The Magic Mountain to Atoll Gawande, and giving our book recommendations. So stay tuned and let literary friction be your tonic for the next hour. Our first guest on the show about medicine and literature is David France. France is a contributing editor for New York magazine and has also written for The New York Times. His 2012 documentary film, How to Survive a Plague, was an Oscar finalist, won a Directors Guild Award and a Peabody Award, and was nominated for two Emmys, among other accolades. His latest book of the same name, published last year, tells the story of how citizens and science tamed AIDS over the course of 20 years. We spoke to David last week. So David, this is a story about how activists and scientists work to tame AIDS, um, and especially in New York City. And one of the things I really loved about the book is it's not only a history, but it's also your own personal experience of the movement. So could you explain why you came to be in New York and, and what your part in the movement was, and and also why you decided to write the book in this way?
2: Well, I moved to New York in, um, in June of 1982, and it was just a few weeks before the first report in the New York Times that... the of, you know, of some mysterious new ailment affecting the community. Um, and uh, so really my entire kind of adulthood um, had been defined by the, the, the plague. Um, I didn't expect to, to be taking it on. I guess no, nobody did, right? But mm-hmm. um, I had moved to New York um, mostly to find uh, the community of gay men and lesbians that had uh, begun to build a kind of a ghetto um, space in the city where people could uh, in, in to some degree exercise some personal liberties and freedoms that coming from the Midwest in the United States, I was not able to, um, to enjoy. Uh, and I was also studying uh, for my PhD in philosophy. Um, and then uh, as the, uh, as the plague grew, it, called upon people in the community to, uh, to take a role. And, um, and yeah, you know, I, 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 knew I couldn't be the person who did, you know, the, the bedside caretaking. I just didn't have that in my character. Um, and so I started just looking for answers and trying to, um, you know, alert the community as much as possible. And that turned into a, a career in, in journalism, mostly around the, the epidemic. So with the story in the book, Really, the story of the plague in New York is something that I witnessed. And, and so I presented as a kind of a first-person witness account of of uh, of the disease as it became uh, more and more onerous and the community as it rose to address it.
1: Yeah, And it's a, a wonderful and I would imagine quite complicated to write bringing together of the kind of scientific background of... The cancers and the lesions that were the first things that people noticed alongside mm. these personal stories of the characters and your friends and the people who were were part of the activist movement um and it that's what i found exciting about it it feels like a real chronicle of the time where you you do mm. at the reader you feel like you get the full 360 degree you know experience with all of its horror but also all of its hope because it's this phenomenal story of uh of kind of human power in many ways against this Extra human force of negativity, um, and we—it's that-
2: really—it's it's the discovery of that power and the claiming of it by uh, by a community that had no power whatsoever when this all began. You know, the um, in 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 this country, homosexuality was illegal in, in nearly half the states in 1981 when the plague hit. There were very few cities, New York included. New York excluded, I mean, that had any um, uh, legal protection for for the community. Um, and a, a gay rights bill had been debated in New York uh, for a decade by that point and had always been voted down. So we were losing jobs, we were losing apartments, and um, we, we had no recourse. We literally had no connection to the uh, to civic life in the city and in the country. Um and that to go from that to the kind of uh, you know, like really muscular um, uh, attack against the, the plague that ultimately was the essential component to move forward the scientific research and the, uh, the prevention methodologies. And uh, it was really a remarkable story. And that it took just 15 years to go from paralysis to this kind of cultural um, strength is the story of the arrival of, of a people.
0: I agree. And what impressed me was, I think we sometimes like to think of medicine as something that's out of our hands, or something that progresses without our input. And this was a story about how people and activists can actually change the way that medicine works. And one of the things this book is, is also just a wonderful character study of some of the, the activists who were involved. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ones I was, I was really interested was uh, Peter Staley, who doesn't necessarily fit the profile of an activist, but was really instrumental in, for instance, getting AZT um, to, to patients who really needed it. So could you talk a little bit about Staley and, and how you came to know him?
2: Peter Staley was a kind of a second generation AIDS activist. Um, the first generation being, um, uh, those that were initially diagnosed in the, in the very first minutes really of the, of the, of the plague, well before we knew what was causing the illness and well before it had any name, which isn't true. They were actually calling it a grid for gay related immunodeficiency as though homosexuality itself had something to do with the disease state. Peter was younger, moved to New York in the uh, uh, later in the 80s, in 84, 83, 84, was very naive about the community itself. He, although he identified as gay, he had a, a true and solid personal commitment to the closet. He believed that um, uh, that he was going to uh, de- develop a, a, a career on Wall Street that was going to pay him well. And then he envisioned for himself a role in politics, that perhaps he would be elected to Congress or to the Senate. And he knew that you couldn't do that as an openly gay man. You just could not do that. So he built uh, and defended a a very opaque closet for himself. And his diagnosis changed that and uh, and immediately made him realize that uh, if he was going to survive if he had any chance to survive he was going to have to find the community and work with the community and uh, and identify kind of the the power centers that were going to help him find the answers he was going to need
1: yeah it's an amazing i mean it's it's shocking i was born in 1986 and i grew up with people who had who were hiv positive around me and who died um when i was very young Mm -hmm. and and reading the violence that was that you guys were all facing from the society around you was very shocking, actually, because I think maybe my generation take it a little bit for granted some of this kind of stuff. And I wondered when I was reading, you know, younger gay male friends of yours who were born in the 90s, or you know, the early noughties, do you feel that they understand what came before them, you know, uh, in the in their own community? Or do you think that reading a book like this would be as shocking to them as it was
2: for me? Uh, no, I actually, I, I know that it shocks. There's been s- such a change in culture. Um, it's, you know, it's not fixed. It's still tough to grow up um, uh, LGBT mm. in most parts of, of this country, most parts of the world. You, you, you still inherit from society a, a shame. But what doesn't happen is overt hostility in the way that it existed back then and, 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 and it is shocking to people. It, it shocks people to hear and to read the, the, the words of mainstream politicians. Once the, the kind of uh, mainstream media started covering the disease, instead of generating the kind of a compassion or empathy, um, it launched a uh, backlash of violence of the kind we'd never seen before. And the, that violence just increased in New York and elsewhere. And I chronicle it in New York because that's where I was reporting through the late 80s and into the early 90s, where um, uh, by 1992, there were something like 1,900 incidents of of violent assaults against uh, the community in the summer alone. Um, and 20% of those were were. Um, Uh, involved police violence you know the cops just identifying gay people and attacking them it was you know they were they were um, punishing us
0: do you have a sense of we we're talking about the difference between now and you know even just 20 years ago do you have a sense of what the watershed moment was for change how things have have changed so much
2: Well, you know, a lot of credit has to go to AIDS activism, um, and it was it became kind of it became apparent really early on that that the first task in this campaign that uh, that seemed in, so enormous and impossible was to establish in the in the eye of the uh, general public the humanity of gay people, that we were just human, and. Um, and, and that took many years to do and, it, and that was required in order to find and trigger that kind of empathy that we were gonna need um, to, to be able to bring scientists to the table with some sense of urgency to try to come up with a solution to the, to the plague. And that work was, has carried forward to today. I mean, that began this, the inversion of the LGBT community in the larger culture and, um, and integration happened so quickly you know 15, 15 years really is is the entire length of it and and then you know after after 1996 and drugs came out that made it possible to survive an HIV infection um if you look down the road from there politically gay marriage was already visible on the horizon
1: yeah it's it's phenomenal the speed um one of the other things that struck me a lot was the difference between the way the gay community in San Francisco and the gay community in New York were dealing with the plague before they kind of came together and started communicating, um, in terms of things like the sort of free love culture and stuff like that, which I, as a Brit, hadn't really realised that San Francisco mm-hmm. and New York were so different in that in that way. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that for our British listeners.
2: <laughs> it, it, it is a very interesting fact, and, um, and and you know, I grew up as a Gay boy in the Midwest, and and you knew that you had to get to the coast, <laughs> and you knew you had a choice of either San Francisco or New York. That was that was really it, and 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 you knew the difference was that uh, San Francisco was a a kind of a free love culture. It was about building a community uh, apart. It was about um, it was about you know, hugs and drugs and love and, uh, and, and drag queens and um, uh, parties. And New York was the place that was engaged in the politics. It, it was the home to the, the two national organizations at the time. It was where uh, uh, um, strategies were being developed for um, uh, legislative pushes across the country. And, uh, so if you had a, a feeling and of Stonewall
0: wanting to, riots as well.
2: and it was, it was right. It was the, it was the ground zero in the, um, in, in the modern LGBT movement. And so if you wanted to engage in politics, if you wanted to, to try to fight, you would come to New York. And if you wanted to try to love, you would go to San Francisco. Uh, so I came to New York um, <laughs> In San Francisco, the response to the epidemic was really one of caretaking. It was one of of trying to um, to protect the soul, um, maybe more than the body, there was a, a kind of a lot of you know good death. And they were creating a lot of the rituals around death that came to define the way gay men were were facing their mortality in those years. Uh, and, and And we learned a lot from them ultimately, although it was hard for information to travel across the the you know the expanse of the country we didn't have and, and people are shocked to learn this social media we didn't have <laughs> the internet so um, so it, it took a lot of um, intentional kind of um, coalescing a, across the country for for some of those principles to merge but ultimately what what developed in New York was the, the the political response and then in six years into the epidemic when still no drugs had come out and still it became it was still apparent that nobody was researching this and nobody in the federal government was directing this and nobody at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention were controlling or preventing disease. And anger rose up, and that rose up in New York. And and New York uh, uh, managed it, its anger by forming this kind of vast grassroots, um, really... Uh, outraged organization called ACT UP. And ACT UP brought um, fury to the battle against the epidemic.
0: And it's a success story in many ways. I mean, he, as it's you point trouble. out in the in the very introduction, people went from their deathbeds to living long and relatively healthy lives um, in it a very short happen. space of time.
2: But that research didn't happen quickly. Yes. So the activist begins in 1987, and it's a it's an activism without a, you know, without an educated blueprint. Um, so it had to learn at every corner. It it it, it, it failed often, mm-hmm. but ultimately, by nineteen ninety six, so nine years into this, ultimately, uh, they had um, infiltrated the the halls of scientific research. They had um, demanded and received a place at the table, first time ever, without them. Would we have gotten to the point where HIV would be a, a possibly and mostly survivable infection? I believe we would have, but I know we wouldn't have done it in 1996. Yeah. We would yeah. not have gotten there. And the, the people, those very activists whose stories I was telling, they would not have survived. And millions more would have died. So this, this is really uh, a story driven by self-interest, but, um, but ultimately one that had vast... Uh, positive impact uh, throughout the world and you know throughout humanity.
0: I think you argue that incredibly compellingly in the book itself. Um, and thank you for fighting the fight. I think you've you've moved us closer to understanding just how important these activists were. So thank you very much, David France. Um, now thank before you. you leave us, we ask all of our authors to recommend a book. So I wouldn't mind. I I wonder if you wouldn't mind doing that right now.
2: Well, I'd be happy to, and I, I I think you're going to enjoy this book.
1: Okay,
0: it
2: is it it's called Christadora, uh, and uh, it's a novel uh, about the same time period in New York, um, on on the edges of the AIDS epidemic, um, and uh, it says it covers four decades um, and uh, two families. It. Shows better than anything I've ever read, the 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 broad cultural impact of this period of mass death and uh, political hostility, and how that impacts families and um, and 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 really the souls of of the people who who lived through that time, even without direct knowledge of what was happening. And it's a beautifully written book by Tim Murphy. Um, and I know it's published in the UK, and uh, and so I couldn't recommend it more highly.
1: Amazing, we'll get our hands on it, double
0: yeah, quick. I hadn't heard of that before, but no, it sounds either. brilliant. Yeah. Mm. So David France, thank you so much for speaking with us today. The book is called How to Survive a Plague. There's also a documentary of the same name, um, if you're interested in checking out either of those. And David has been shortlisted for the Welcome Prize 2017
1: thank you so much david bye
2: thank you octavia thank you carrie
1: The next guest in our medicine show is sarah moss sarah is currently an associate professor of creative writing at the university of warwick she's the author of the novels cold earth night walking bodies of light and signs for lost children all nominated for a host of prizes. She spent a year as a visiting lecturer at the University of Iceland and wrote an account of her time there in Names for the Sea, Strangers in Iceland. Her latest novel is about Adam, a father whose life comes undone when his 15-year-old daughter collapses on her school playing fields. We spoke to Sarah last week. So
0: Sarah, the title zone begins with a rupture. Um, Mm. the, The main character, Adam Goldschmidt, is a stay-at-home dad. He's also a sort of part-time academic. And he's told one day that his 15-year-old daughter, Miriam, has collapsed on her school fields and stopped breathing. Um, Why did you want to start with this event? What was powerful about it for you?
3: I was interested in aftermath. um, And I think throughout my fiction, certainly in the, the last few bodies of life and science for lost children, I've been interested in what happens before and after the moments of drama, the kind of small unfolding through daily life of of ripples and after effects. So I wanted to put the big event at the beginning and then let things unfold rather than have a climax in the middle or an explosion at the end.
1: Yeah, and it's very effective. Um, It's a very uh, sharp, shock (laughs) Um, and kind of view into the world I mean neither Carrie nor I uh, have children Um, and so to get into the head of a parent and experience the parental fears um, in that way and for that character to be a man rather than a woman you know it it, it packs a lot of punch Um, and and you said in the book that you wanted to tell a story about living with the knowledge of mortality and harm yes you know not being distorted by fear Um, can you talk a little bit more about that
3: the, well, one of the points of genesis for this book was a day when, um, I was, it was very ordinary, I was listening to Radio 4 in the morning while getting breakfast and you know making the kids pack lunches and yelling about where the sports kit was and what should have been done the night before. And there was a report from a bombed hospital in Syria, I mean it must have been three, four years ago now. And... There was a man standing in the ruins of his house, holding his daughter's body, and he was shouting in Arabic. And the translator said, where is the world? This is happening to us. Where is the world? And I kind of froze with the peanut butter in one hand, thinking, I'm here, I hear you, but I have no idea what to do about the fact that I'm here, and I hear you, you know, here's the world, fine. We've heard you, but but I don't know what to do about it. And I kind of went off into my day feeling a bit haunted by that. And then in the afternoon when my kids came home from school, one of their friends had broken a leg on the rugby pitch and they'd called the the air ambulance and he'd been helicoptered to hospital and was doing fine. And I just thought, at one end of the Mediterranean, you launch helicopters to bomb children's hospitals. And at the other end of the Mediterranean, you launch helicopters to lift children who've broken their legs while playing sports. And I don't really know how to live. Both of those things are true. And it's not that I think that you shouldn't launch the air ambulance with someone who's broken a leg because at the other end of the Mediterranean you're launching launching helicopters to bomb people. But I don't know how to look at those two facts at the same time and go on with my life. So really I wanted to write a book that was taking both kinds of suffering seriously that wasn't saying that it doesn't matter if one child in England dies a dignified death in hospital Because there are other children all over the world dying undignified and horrible deaths outside hospitals. But also not to say that, oh, well, you know, it must just be different in Syria and Syrian parents must take these things differently because we all know that's not true. But it's so hard to live with both of those stories at the same time. And I wanted to try and do that. Mm.
0: And it's interesting to hear you speak about things that are happening politically right now because this book felt very contemporary to me. And I think Penelope Lively, in her review in The Guardian, described um, the title zone as intensely contemporary. Mm. Uh, and, and especially in its relation to the NHS and other public bodies and how yeah. they respond when we go through these things. Were, were you thinking about writing something that was very contemporary in that way?
3: Yeah, just in a kind of throw caution to the winds and go for it sort of way. Um, I think partly having just written two historical novels I quite wanted to, I mean I think historical novels are always more about the time of writing than the time of setting. Every historical novel is really addressed to its contemporary readership but I just wanted to write very immediately about the world around us and actually of course I mean that book was written in what, 2013 14, 15 so some of it, I was just taking a punt on what I thought was going to happen in the next year or two, um, and realised that That's you can impressive. do that. You can do that very reliably, and I, could, you know, I could do it again now. Um, it, it didn't feel very risky to assume that by the time the book came out, Syria was going to be a mess, and there was still going to be a proxy war going on, and the NHS was going to be in crisis, and the government was going to be drifting to the right. You know, it, actually, you can guess all of those things with some confidence.
1: Yeah, which is. <laughs> devastating to think about but but true um and the thing the thing i think that you manage very effectively is the interplay between miriam's voice and adam the narrator's voice because they're both critical in different ways and they're kind of um that the 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 light of a of a teenager's perspective on something even though she's the patient and she's in the hospital but she's full of all of that vigor and anger and fury at at injustice and you know i am I, I really loved her as a character. She reminded me of, of myself and my friends when we Thank were precocious you. fifteen year olds, you know. Um, but I, I think it's one of it's something that comes out really beautifully in in over the course of the book the the different ways of looking at this NHS, whether you're you're well, from both sides of the hospital bed, I guess I mean. And you also obviously because the mother Emma is herself a GP, so you yes. have this family that has all these different perspectives on this system that. Brits have emotionally ad- identified with for such a long mm. time, you know, which is such a strange magic. Um, but I wondered, you know, we we know that you've been shortlisted for the Wellcome Prize, you know, for the last three years. And obviously, yes. it's a prize that is interested in medical themes. Um, do you think of yourself as a, as a medically themed novelist? <laughs> no, no,
3: not, not at all. And it's interesting because... I mean, sometimes people say you always write about medicine, but they also say you always write about parenthood um, or you always write about young women in crisis. I think it's more that medicine is what's there usually at the crisis points in our lives. If you're being born or giving birth or you're dying or somebody you love is dying or you're afraid for your life, you're usually in the presence of doctors. And I'm interested in i guess more interested in healing really than suffering i'm interested in how we imagine ways forward and how we live with pain and trauma and difficulty because we all do i mean that's the other thing people sort of say oh it's so dark and i think it, it's not actually dark because i'm interested in how you how you get on with your life having recognized these realities how you can go on being funny mm. um and i think for me it's more that the doctors, are
1: the people we look to now, I
0: mean, you know we tend not to call the priest anymore, yeah, that's mm. true. i one of the things that really struck me in terms of your depiction of medicine is that mm. novels seem like a very good way to explore medicine because yeah. we there's so much we don't know. So much of it is still magic and guesswork. and um, trying things out, and and it, it seems like fiction in some ways is is sort of a, is a rich probing grounds for that yes. uncertainty.
3: Absolutely, but also certainly from you know, from the patient's point of view, we go to the doctor when our narrative is broken. You know, if I, I don't know, if I've done a 10 mile run and I forgot to take some water and it's been hot and sunny and when I get home my headaches, I'm very unlikely to go to the doctor because I have a story that makes sense of my headache. You know, I have a beginning, a middle and an end. But if I wake up in the night with exactly the same headache, I don't have a story for it. Mm -hmm. So I might very well go to the doctor. And when I go to the doctor, the first thing I want is a diagnosis, which is a story. This is what is happening to you. This is what is going to happen. This was the beginning, the middle and the end. And the times we really don't cope is when medicine doesn't have a narrative for us. It's not even really, I think, when it doesn't have a cure. It's when it doesn't have a story. When we get told, well, sorry, we don't know. Or we can't do anything about it. You know, we can't give you an ending. We can't give you a narrative shape. So, I mean, I think from the clinician's point of view, there's a lot more than narrative going on. Of course, it's science and it's evidence-based. But from the patient's point of view, that's what we, one of the things we need from medicine is stories. And one of the reasons we get frustrated with medicine is that it doesn't always provide the stories that
0: we're looking for. I think that's a wonderful point. And it's one of the central conflicts in this novel Mm. um, of of not actually being able to understand what happened to Miriam. Yes. Um, And uh, what I thought was interesting is this is as much a novel about... Um, what happens to Adam and Miriam but it's also about so many other stories that you've brought in almost to fill up that narrative when it, when there isn't yeah. one um I was especially really enthralled by the way that he describes Coventry Cathedral yes and I wondered if you wouldn't mind just just talking a little bit about that why you chose mm. to bring it in and, and what it means for you
3: yeah, sure. So Adam is researching the the bombing of the old Coventry Cathedral and the building of the new one. And the the old one was bombed quite early in the war, and the new one was built in the well, in the end, late fifties, early sixties. That partly has a personal tale. We moved from West Cornwall to the West Midlands in two thousand and twelve. And moving from Falmouth to the vicinity of Coventry is quite a painful thing to do. It's a long way. Well, it's a long way, and you're you're leaving the sea and the beach and, you know, lovely Cornwall, and you're living in the middle of the West Midlands, which is very vibrant and interesting and multicultural, but not very beautiful. Mm. Um, but I was really determined to find ways of making friends with the West Midlands and ways of being interested in it and not just to view it as something I had to endure when it wasn't Cornwall and one of the first things i found was coventry cathedral which fascinated me partly because it's such a it's an exemplary thing to do with the ruins of a sacred place there were lots of bombed churches all over europe after the war and some people as in dresden rebuilt it as if it had never been bombed in the first place as if you could just kind of obliterate that trauma and in some places the ruins were simply left in memory of the trauma which means that you're looking at it every day and you never you never get to move on but in coventry the ruins are still there but a new thing was built next to them kind of in conversation with them so they have left the ruins they're still there but then there's this beautiful new structure which is kind of talking to what happened all of the time and I mean, I have no Christian faith at all, but for me, that was such a model of what you do when things have fallen apart and when there's something that you will never forget and in some ways you will never get over. You just stand next to it and make something beautiful.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a real symbol of... Um, well, it, if you think about it, like the body with, that carries the scars of its old injuries yeah. and its old illnesses, you know, buildings yeah. have scars too. Um, no, it's a really powerful symbol in the book and I couldn't help but make a connection between, you know, the NHS as some kind of metaphorical cathedral, the doctors as modern, yes. modern priests, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's all woven together very well. And and also you, you yourself are an academic, um, am I right? And with a specialty yes. in romantic England. And do you think that um, being an academic changes the way that you approach fiction? Do you think it affects your perspective on a novel and how you structure it and how you go about your research?
3: That's a really interesting question. I think that it's quite hard to separate because the reasons I became an academic probably overlap enormously with the reasons I write. Um, And it's really a desire to make sense of things by reading and writing. My novels are very research heavy. I mean, every novel has two or three or more years of research in it. And you really need a university library for that sort of work. Yeah. And I see the present as, as the creation of the past. So I need to know how we got to where we are so I can think about where we might go next. So I guess to to some extent, yes, that's true. But I also think that somebody who had similar interests and was not an academic would be able to do similar work. And indeed, lots of people do. I mean, it doesn't require a PhD.
0: <laughs> do you do lots of research for your novels?
3: Yes, yes, years and years. Um, but it... It's funny, we've just moved house, so everything's been in and now mostly out of boxes, and it was really important to me that my research notebooks for the novel I'm working on at the moment came with me, almost in my hand as we moved, and that I knew that they were all the time. But I never look at them. I mean, you know, there's three years of detailed notes of lots of research and visits and interviews and books. But I don't look at them at all when I'm writing the novel. I just need them with me as some kind of transitional object.
0: So I, I'm wondering if you did, um, well, what kind of research you did for this novel? Did it involve getting to know the NHS in, in a really full way? And, and did it change your impression of the NHS at all?
3: Um, no, I think probably that was the bit I more or less already knew. I have quite a lot of friends who work in the NHS. So... I hear about it a lot and, you know, like everybody else in Britain, I rely on it when I'm ill or when anybody in my family is ill. Um, so that bit probably it involved a lot of talking to people and maybe asking questions that I wouldn't have asked otherwise. Most of the research was Coventry Cathedral, um, the intentional communities that Adam's father was in in the 60s. Um, I came to know an awful lot about Miriam's condition, which is very rare and required. I really did need the university library and indeed the medical school library for that bit. Um, But no, most most of the research was the other themes.
0: Um, so one last thing, Sarah, if you wouldn't mm. mind, we ask all of our guests to recommend a book. So I believe you've you've brought in something that you want to tell us about.
3: I have, yes. Um, this is a novel called Ice by Ulla Lena Lundberg. Um, it's translated from Swedish, published by Sort of Books. I love it because it starts off very gently. It's about a priest and his family moving to a Baltic island in the immediate aftermath of World War Two, And it's just absolutely lovely. It's very plainly, beautifully written. And the island comes to life and the community comes to life. And there are so many island books that are dark where somebody thinks they're getting something idyllic and they're not, but in this case, he doesn't really think he's getting an idyll. He thinks he's getting a very particular kind of community, which is what he gets. And lots of people like him, but some people don't. And all the way through, I was thinking, I love this. I wish you could have a whole book that was so gentle and so committed to really lovely writing without feeling the need for some terrible thing to happen. But I know that's not going to happen because it's (laughs) a long book. And I know that in a long book, you have to have an event and there is an event coming. And I'm right, there there is an event coming. But it's so beautifully done that you almost don't mind the, the rupture of the loveliness that goes before. So yeah, that's that's my discovery of the last
1: few months. Oh, it sounds brilliant. I've not heard of it, so I'll be adding it to my list for definite.
3: Yeah, I just found it browsing in dawns. Oh, dawn's I love light it. Light. I love that yeah. when that
1: happens. It's so, I yeah. find it rare these days, actually, that I'm browsing in a bookshop like that and gems fall into your hands, totally.
3: Every time I go to London, I wall off two hours to browse bookshops and buy things that I would never have come across otherwise.
1: Wonderful
0: words Um, for us to hear on this literary podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sarah Moss, it has been such a pleasure to have you on. Um, Your book is called The Title Zone. It is shortlisted for the Welcome Prize. Um, And thank you so much for talking to us.
1: Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you.
0: So after our excellent interviews of David France and Sarah Moss, we are going to discuss today's theme, um, more generally so, medicine in literature, which as usually happens, we realized is a much bigger theme than we could encompass in a 15-minute conversation, but we will do our best. And of course, this is inspired by the Welcome Prize, which awards um, a book that has a central theme that engages with some aspect of medicine, health, or illness. So I thought a good way to start might be to ask the question, why is it important for literature to engage with medicine? You might, you might argue that it's impossible not to engage with medicine, but let's put that to one side. And do you want to start us off, Octavia?
1: As always, babe, ready yeah. to go. Um, well, I think I want to pick up on what Sarah Moss said, which is that medicine is itself a telling of a story you know a diagnosis is a story um and, and in the interview with her we were talking about how medicine is not an exact science at all actually and you know you find when you're ill or someone you love is ill and you have to get in quite deep with the medical establishment one way or another you're more often told we don't know yet we're going to do another test than you think and you know the act of having to look back over your recent p- health history in order to piece together symptoms that through one veil could mean one thing and through another veil could mean something else, one of which is terrifyingly fatal and the other one is like trapped wind or whatever. Um, So it it, it naturally fits with the telling of stories. I'm sorry, I keep banging them up because (laughs) I'm getting very handy, wavy. Um, It's, uh, yeah, it's so much guesswork. And, you know, literature exists to fill the gaps in the spaces that we can't, you know, that that there's not a clear... um, development of something, right? We fill in, we tell stories to fill in emotional gaps, imaginative gaps. And if you think about medicine as being the pursuit of always trying to fill the new gap, because we're never gonna have the total knowledge, are we? You know, the brain, for example, is something we still know so little about. We're still trying to tell stories about, or the fact that people think that the gut has its own brain, you know, it's a fascinating science fiction story in the making Mm. within Mm. our own
0: bodies. Yeah, two points to make about that. One, I think that argument... I love it when you make a list. Oh, (laughs) i like to be logical in my reasoning. (laughs) It's all going to fall apart now. But um, (laughs) uh, I was reading about um, in medicine, narrative is a sort of, I don't know if it's a new catchphrase, but it's certainly something that a lot of people are using. Um, Recognizing that narrative is such a big part of medicine and encouraging doctors to tell stories about our bodies because... Ultimately, I think, you know, medicine is a science of course, but it, it, it's it's so much of it is unknown and it engages with humans and we have to acknowledge that if we are to understand our bodies fully and understand medicine fully. Um, second of all, I, I just wanted to build upon that um, by saying that there's been this amazing recent trend of um, very you know, best-selling books by doctors writing about what they do. So, Henry Marsh, Do No Harm. I mentioned Atul Gawande in my introduction who wrote Being Mortal and and a number of other books. Um, Siddhartha Mukherjee, who wrote A Biography of Cancer, Emperor of All Maladies, and just came out with a book called The Gene. Um, And people (laughs) seem to be endlessly fascinated by this, especially recently. And I think it goes along with that idea of needing to know the unknown and needing to fill in the gaps of narrative. And... Having a sense of what medicine actually means behind the terms and the technicalities and the the medical language that sanitizes things in some way. And when we can see doctors as fallible humans, it makes it much more palatable and accessible to us.
1: Yeah, and I think the word that kind of pulls that all together is empathy. Empathy is often the thing that is lacking in communication between a medical professional and a patient because they're coming at the problem from two different angles. And um, I mean, I want to add to your list, Oliver Sacks, who was this fabulous author and neurologist who was writing about his medical practice for a long time. And one of the things that people always say about Sacks's writing is that it's so heavy with empathy. He was a doctor who was completely obsessed with his patient's experience rather than the disease or the illness as a scientific kind of fact. Um, and actually, when I was was prepping for the show, I was having a, a good, uh, good old Google, and there are endless lists now online of books for doctors to read that are basically about bringing empathy to the situations. Because I think that, you know, one of the things that is a very common experience dealing with, I, I, I mean, I speak really for Britain here, but the NHS, which is this heavily taxed suffering extraordinary but terribly flawed system that we have is that the doctors and nurses involved in it don't have the time to be empathetic because they're completely up against it. Um, And also when you have a system that takes its medics at the age of 18 and funnels them through a completely separate education system for seven years. But I think that literature can help bridge that gap massively because the act of reading and the act of writing as we say so often on the show is an act of empathy.
0: I did also just want to mention a really great Um, article by Andrew Solomon who wrote Far From the Tree, which I always talk about and I think is a really good example of a very empathetic approach to medicine and to science. Um, All of his book, The Noonday Demon, which is um, about depression as well. Um, And I think it was inspired by the welcome uh, prize being awarded, which which only started being awarded recently. So I suppose that's on brand, although that seems a bit...
1: No, no, good. You shoehorned it in. Well yeah,
0: okay. Anyway, um, but he, he has a very... Uh, he is... I think the title, which he probably didn't come up with, is something like um, literature about medicine, maybe all that can save us. Um, and he makes a very compelling point. And one of the things he says is the exploration of the... Philosophical complexity that lies between sickness and health is perhaps the most urgent matter facing medicine and literature because scientific definitions of illness often run up against humanist definitions of identity." Bingo. I thought that was a, a wonderful way to put it mm-hmm. um, and, and captures how important it is, it is for us to, to write about medicine. Yeah, absolutely. Which touches all of our lives, of course. Of course. So who
1: what, what are our favorite books about medicine? Okay, I, um, I'm i going to... Oh, sorry, I just realised, I wanted to say very quickly about this whole subgenre of literature that I didn't know existed called medical romance. Did you know about that? No. I feel like it, we Tell should give about it a 30-second... It. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a big subcategory of contemporary romance literature, which is also not a genre that I um, read often, if ever, these days. Um, and I, I went down a bit of a wormhole on the internet about it. It's fascinating because it, it comes from the kind of doctors and nurses games that I'm sure, you know, the majority of people... Played around with as kids is a classic narrative, um, and in this in this kind of subcategory of romantic literature, it respects the boundaries of professional doctor-patient relationships. So these imagined stories are always about doctors and nurses, or doctors and other doctors, and interestingly, um, tend to be set around obs ob, ob, ob and gynae, um, <laughs> which is all a bit intense uh, and. It said on this website, patients bring a lot of potential for subplots, which is absolutely true. And apparently, also mostly, the patients completely recover. So they're these sexy narratives of uh, world-saving doctors and nurses who fix everything and get to bone each other at the same time. And I just think that's a weirdly utopic vision of, I don't know what. I, I just I didn't know about it before. Oh, it sounds kind of like
0: Grey's Anatomy, but I never worse. watched Grey's Anatomy. What? No, doctors boning each other. Basically. Okay, I see, I see. Yeah, and lots of like bombs going off and and. Doctors saving the world, yeah, white saviors. There's a crisis every every episode. I see, Um, but that's very interesting. How would you put that in the context of our larger discussion of medicine and empathy?
1: I would say it's a desperate uh, attempt to assert our own, uh, assert and validate our dominance over things that we cannot possibly hope to win against, like viral infection. Hmm. Okay, Okay. so my, uh, my, my favourite book about medicine, um, let's move to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: let's talk about our favourite books about
1: medicine. So I actually found this quite difficult um, and realised that I hadn't read a great number of medical books, really, of, 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 of books with medical narratives, which I thought was interesting, um, and realised that the one that, that really stood out, and funnily enough, I didn't think of it as a medical book initially, is Heart of a Dog by Mikhail Bulgakov, who um, wrote The Master of Margarita, which I bang on about often. Um, but this book was written in 1925, and it, it the reason I didn't think of it as a medical book is because it's really political satire. However, it's completely medical, because it's about a man who, um, a doctor, a surgeon, who transplants parts of a criminal male into a dog, and the dog becomes a man. Um, and he transforms, and the, actually the doctor's name is Philip uh, Filipovich, Priya, Bra- Priya I don't oh. know, I can't, that's really, that tripped me up, I practiced it as well, anyway, the name means he who transforms, and um, in the book he's, he's a very hypocritical figure, this doctor, he's an anti-communist, he plays the system to his advantage, and uh, the dog Sharik, who narrates the first part of the book, becomes his kind of gentleman's dog and gets fattened up and everything, but then... His true uh, intention becomes clear, and he's gonna uh, cut this dog up and operate on him and 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 make an experiment of him. Um, and the perspective narrative perspective shifts to that of another character to the surgeon's protege who's a younger doctor um, whose case notes tell the story. So it's a very it's it's a book steeped in medicine, I guess, but but the higher ideas are about, Um, control and, you know, man's compulsion to play God politically, ideologically, as well as medically and physically. Um, And I won't go... I I, I kind of want to keep telling you about the narrative, but I won't because I really want you guys to go and read it Um, because it's very relevant now. It it kind of feels more relevant now than it did when I read it about 10 years ago um, because of the fucked up state of the world and and the way people are trying to write new... um, contemporary political narratives that are about control you know coercive control again so yeah there we go mm. it, it, it just
0: on that point when you start thinking about what are medical novels the list just grows and grows and grows i was thinking you know the magic mountain one flew over the cuckoo's nest love in the time of cholera the white hotel of human bondage it, jekyll and, jekyll and hyde, hyde yes i know yeah it
1: but just, i don't think of any of those as medical books until i really meditate on it exactly and then it's like wow yeah Frankenstein, obviously, which Heart of a Dog is is very much you know is, is speaking to. Mm. Um, so my book first,
0: I just want to shout out to Andrew Solomon because I really do recommend that. Yeah, his <laughs> fan
1: girl, it's I know, amazing. A,
0: I went to go see him and I was like sort of blushing the whole time. I think he's so amazing. Harry um,
1: Pitt, you're such a nerd.
0: <laughs> you know, whatever. I I'm I'm 31 now. I'm I'm comfortable with my. I also kind of hate it when people call themselves nerds, so I'm just going to leave it to the oh, side. Sorry. We can, no, 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 you called me a nerd, so it's that's fine. Okay. But I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm such a nerd. I self identify yes, as a nerd. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I, I, I get think it. that's uncool.
1: I don't like it either. Yeah, yeah put them in a bin
0: yeah anyway um but so so yes i think you should all read that and i think that's a great example of this kind of contemporary nonfiction approach to medicine which has really revolutionized the field and is really important in terms of understanding illness and medicine and the way we conceive of illness and the way we construct illness and how it relates to identity Mm, Um, and prejudice right exactly yes um But in terms of a novel, I just wanted to talk about Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf, which we often think of as a story about Clarissa Dalloway, you know, buying the flowers and being in love and thinking about London and et cetera, et cetera. But it's also, of course, a portrait of Septimus Smith, um, a man who's, who's suffering from shell shock after the First World War. And it's a really devastating and also, I think, groundbreaking portrait of mental illness. Um, and and uh, we see inside his consciousness, it's not, um, he's not described from above, but rather from within. And I think one of the reasons, you know, you never want to speculate on an author's own experience, but we know that Virginia Woolf suffered from, you know, devastating depression, um, intense bouts of depression. And you sense that this is a portrait that is is at least very, it's a very human portrait of, of what it's like to suffer in this way. And I think that book, for me, was very important to read that and to start to understand through this fragmented language um, what it must have been like for these soldiers coming back from war and, and what it's like generally to suffer that kind of rupture or PTSD or whatever we, we call it
1: today. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. Shell shock and PTSD are conceived of as the male version of hysteria. Mm. So it's it's interesting that, that Mrs. Dalloway is this narrative that seems to be so much about the feminine, but actually it's about the masculine experience of something that's conceived of as the feminine. Mm. Good point. Sorry, that was from an, that was knee-deep in yeah. thesis thoughts there. Yeah,
0: I, I enjoy I I have been out of academia so long. I, I like when you sort of bring it back in.
1: Oh, baby, i do it for you anytime. Okay,
0: well, thank you. <laughs> 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 Okay, Carrie and Octavia back again uh, to talk about our book recommendations. We, of course, had David and Sarah recommend their books at the end of our discussions with them, but we thought because you're always clamoring for our recommendations, we would give our own, uh, anyway, Octavia, do you want to start? <laughs> yeah. People aren't really clamoring for our recommendations. I like to believe that. <laughs> that made me laugh.
1: Yeah, I think probably three people are. Yeah, at least okay. three people. Well, this is very important for those three people. Yeah, absolutely. Take it away. I'll start. Um, well, I've been I've been having a really amazing experience since handing in my thesis because I've been just reading for fun which i haven't done for ages it feels like um and i've been two timing three timing four timing books i'm reading willy nilly all over the place i can't i really can't do that i hate doing that i used to hate doing it but something has changed i i have grown i don't know what it is Uh, there's more of me to go around i can share (laughs) with all the books um i think because they're all very different from one another anyway i found it hard to 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 pick one recommendation but i've done it um i haven't actually finished this book uh, because i've been slutting it around with all the others. Um, But it's the one that's had the biggest impact on me so far. It's Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders. Drumroll, please, because the only reason I picked it up is because you were so excited Mm. about it. Mm -hmm. See, I listen and I pay attention. Um, Very flattered. It's really, I just, I'm finding it extraordinary. It's it's so um, original and vibrant in its writing. And uh, I don't want to go into it too much because I know actually from conversations with listeners on twitter that lots of our listeners are reading it or have read it and i don't want to trip anyone up um but if you're not one of those wonderful people who's been chatting with me on twitter first of all chat with me on twitter and second of all you should read it um because it's absolutely brilliant it's just this crazily electric exploration of the afterlife and stories and narratives and voices um and echoes through literature and it's very multi-layered and i find it yeah it's exploration of haunting and belief and 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 I don't know. It's just really got me. It's really, really got me. I'm, I'm actually gonna go home tonight and get into bed with it and finish it. So yeah,
0: it is totally different and extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, um, and and
1: that's rare to hit to feel that. Oh, you're about yeah. to say something mean about. Oh, it, aren't you? I just don't. I just
0: feel like the Twitter hype machine has really gone into overdrive with this book, and I think it's new and interesting, but it didn't sort of change my life in the way that people seem to be professing.
1: Well, aren't you just a party
0: <laughs> It's really good. <laughs> we can we can talk more about it. No, no, it's important. I'll, I'll I'll tell you my reservations off mic. Off mic. Yeah. Okay. You made me sad though. I'm sad oh, now. No, well, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, well, I had a friend who once told me that I um I ha- I always had to qualify a compliment with, you know, a reservation, and I mean, I've that- noticed that I do that now, which is so bad, isn't
1: it's it? It's 100% true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's I good. can't like,
0: be fully enthusiastic about things. Well, you
1: keep, you keep those around you and the things that they love from uh, getting too big-headed, you know? Oh, you God. Know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an awful thing. <laughs> it's not, darling. You're wonderful. I want to hear what book you recommend. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. Let's talk
0: about books. So I have been reading Olive Kittredge by Elizabeth Strout, um, which is a collection of linked stories that was published in 2008. Devoted listeners of Literary... Ref- literary <laughs> <laughs> Devoted listeners of Literary Friction will remember that I read her novel My Name is Lucy Barton Over Christmas and absolutely loved it. Um, and I've now become a bit of a Stroutite or you might say a Stroutian or perhaps a Stratophile. Girl. Whatever you'd like. Um, and I'm just devouring this book. I really love it. Um, each story is set in the same small town in Maine um, and each includes this character, Olive Kittredge, Um, either as a sort of main protagonist or peripherally in some way. Um, And this really complex portrait emerges not only of this woman, but the environment in which surrounds her. And Olive is such a complicated character. You know, she's headstrong, she's mean, she's stubborn. She has some really twisted beliefs about who people are and why they do the things they do. But she's also, at the same time, filled with so much love and confidence and infectious joy and it's this amazing portrait that you don't often get in literature um, and it's a very slim book um, as I said with Lucy Barton the, the prose is incredibly precise um, and yet still manages to capture the the extreme joys and sorrows of life all in one go I mean I, w- I cried like three times when I read the first story I, I just think she's really really brilliant um, and It makes the mundane extraordinary in a way that I think all the best writers do. So um, I'd really recommend it.
1: Can I borrow it, please?
0: Yes, you may. Thanks. Okay, that is all the time we have for today, I believe.
1: I think you're right. Yes.
0: So thank you to our guests, David France and Sarah Moss, to Hannah midas PR, to the Welcome Prize, who helped set this all up to Rory at NTS, who helped us record our first ever Skype and phone calls, which is very exciting, and to Eddie Knight for production and music.
1: Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on nts.live. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Also, the Welcome Prize is awarded on the 24th of April, but please read all the shortlisties. It really is a wonderful list and it was very hard for us to choose from.
3: Yeah, we And we're not being be. paid for us, so. no, we're
1: not being there's no um bunging happening
3: here. No, we're just generally, yeah, we're just excited.
0: Yeah, uh, we'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.